0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Stick Together is produced on the stolen land of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and future and recognise the ongoing struggle for land, justice and peace for Aboriginal people. Hello listeners, this is James Brennan, you're listening to Stick Together the only national radio program focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in Melbourne for 3CR and the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Radio Foundation. On this week's show, I'm speaking to Alison Pennington, Senior Economist from the Centre for Future Work, part of the Australia Institute. We're talking about some of the complexities of working for home and what it means for Australian workers. But before we get into that interview, we're going to hear a little bit of union news. (laughs) Yeah! <laughs> The AMWU has hit out against the Victorian company SPC's decision to mandate the COVID-19 vaccine amongst its employees, claiming workers need to be properly consulted about the move. SPC, based in Shepparton in central Victoria, became the first Australian company to mandate the vaccine jab, requiring all staff to be fully vaccinated by the end of November if they want to gain entry to any of the company's sites. All staff, including casual and permanent, as well as contractors, must have at least the first vaccine jab scheduled. By as early as September 15, 2021. The New South Wales Teachers' Federation will hold an unprecedented meeting of all high school principals and union representatives across Greater Sydney to discuss how to respond if the New South Wales Government persists with its plan to send U12 students back to school. The ETU, the Electrical Trades Union, has called for the federal government to change the rules for COVID-19 payments so that workers under 17 would be eligible for payments. Apprentices younger than 17 are falling through the cracks when it comes to coronavirus disaster payments, the union says. ETU Assistant National Secretary Michael Wright has argued that because many trainees and apprentices have the typical cost of living expenses of being in the workforce, it doesn't make sense to exclude them from the payments solely on account of their age. In international union news, Amazon warehouse workers in Alabama may get a second chance to form the company's first union after a U.S. Labor Board official recommended a rerun of a landmark vote that failed to pass in April. An official at the U.S. National Labor Relations Board determined Amazon's tactics against unionization tainted the election sufficiently to warrant a do-over. Workers had voted by a margin of 2 to 1 not to form a union, in what was viewed as a huge blow to labour advocates seeking to organise Amazon, the second largest employer in the United States. In the coming weeks, original director for the National Labour Relations Board will decide whether to order a rerun based on this recommendation. According to an official with the board, Amazon said it planned to appeal. Workers of a location data startup, Mapbox, said they had lost their bid to form a union to represent their company's U.S.-based employees. In a setback for unionization movement in Silicon Valley that has made recent progress, about two-thirds of Mapbox's eligible U.S. workers signed cards with the Mapbox workers' union, but after the startup declined to voluntarily recognize the union, an election was held. In voting, that concluded on Wednesday 123 employees cast ballots against unionisation, with 81 workers in favour. Hello and welcome to Stick Together. My name is James and today we're going to be talking about working from home with Alison Pennington. Uh, Alison is a senior economist at the Australia Institute's Centre for Future Work conducting research on economic issues facing working people. Welcome Alison. Thanks so much for coming onto the show.
1: My pleasure,
0: James. So I think, you know, we're all pretty familiar with working from home and all of those, you know, kind of terms and jargon that goes around um, by now. But I think, you know, for those that are lucky enough to have a job through the pandemic and are working from home, either through lockdowns or more permanently as part of kind of the modern workplace, it's become, I, I think, you know, there's a little bit to kind of navigate throughout, you know, the challenges that that presents for workers. What are some of the things, I guess, initially that you've sort of come across in your research?
1: Well, like exactly as you said, this pandemic, suddenly uh, a job that allowed you to isolate yourself and like save yourself from contagion, but also drive an income, meant that you were in a much better position than people who had to leave the home and often do that front-facing, public-facing work and then you know, be exposed. Um, the other thing that we, we found in our research is that uh, not only was it about your exposure to the virus based on whether you worked from home or not, but also that also cut down generally like the quality and security of a job and whether you had access to sick leave uh, and your and your pay as well. So people working from home on average earn about 24% more than those who can't. So that's a pretty strong like inequality divide that's being driven I think in this time. But uh, in saying that we now know that there's like we estimated at the start of the pandemic that around 30% of the workforce could work from home in some capacity but now we know as it's gone on, this has grown to uh, around 5.3 million people or 41% of all employed people in Australia are doing uh, most or all, or sorry, I should say at least once, Uh, per week, they're moving, they're working from home. So we're talking like a very large section of the workforce now. Uh, And so, you know, this is this isn't about uh, Well, we need to be aware of the way we're being stratified and divided. But we also need to be very clear that the people working from home are working under an entirely unregulated labour regime in many ways. And some of the key things that have come up um, you know, in our you know, thinking and research on this is first and foremost the costs of working from home. There is a massive cost shift that's going on right now. Uh, of employers shifting their costs onto workers. Uh, and we know because office works were reporting that their shelves were being emptied at the start of the pandemic mm. and people were paying for their own office, home office setups. So you've got those costs and fixed and upfront, the, the, the fixed upfront cost of setting up an office, but all the ongoing costs. Um, people, I mean, besides the fact that a lot of people don't have a spare room in their house to, to dedicate to an office, they are still, they're still paying rent or their mortgage, they're still paying utilities, internet bills, printing sometimes. Uh, and so all these costs would have been normally carried by an employer so there's a cost shift and that's led to corresponding you know demands for some sorts of allowances or compensation for those costs there's issues of safety what does what do our work health safety legislation mean if an employer is required by law to ensure you have a safe workplace what Mm. does it mean if we have hundreds of thousands of homes that become workplaces Uh, another key issue is privacy there's a lot of if people take their work computers back home quite often those computers are there's like software and programs that monitor their you know their whether they're using social media some really pernicious ones keystrokes and you know like that sort of productivity raising you know worker beating sort of stuff is you know we're worried about how much of that has followed people into the home and our privacy laws are not very are not strong enough Yeah. yeah
0: there's a lot to kind of unpack there and I guess one of the things you know that I've sort of really been thinking about is, I guess, through the pandemic, we've seen a broader realisation of how much of an impact casualization has had on workers, um, you know, most and most of those workers themselves don't have the option to work from home when lo- lockdowns do occur. And I think, you know, I think casualization was probably one of the biggest changes to the workforce, um, you know, for many, many years. And it was really sold to workers as a flexible option that they could manage their time, they could do different things and, you know, still fit in their hobbies or for their family obligations and things like that. And I, I think that this new uh, working from home, these kind of flexible options seem to be a reimagining of casualization. I, do you think we should be concerned about, you know, who has the power in deciding when you work from home? Because it's all well and good to have the benefits, but. You know, the power seems to be, you know, not necessarily in the workers' hands about which days and which times we get to do that kind of work.
1: Oh, absolutely, James. Like, <clears throat> when this pandemic first hit, I thought there's, the employers are, they're going to be sort of licking their lips and thinking the, the opportunity to reduce costs means they're going to want to keep people in the home. And I thought, well, workers now need a corresponding right to return to a normal workplace and the mm. right to separate The process of selling their labor in paid work from their private lives um but it's sort of from what the data shows so the actu did this massive survey and um this combined with a whole bunch of international surveys that workers really love working from home right this is Mm -hmm. the pandemic has absolutely shifted uh the dial a bit and i think what workers are saying is that they want to at least have some sort of hybrid experience of being in the home and, and a fixed workplace. Working from home all the time isn't that popular, but uh, you know, best believe that like employers are not happy about the loss of control they've got in this time. Um, so there's, there is a current of employers and that are businesses that are organizing and lobbying on the basis of every worker must return to the workplace. We're not like, you may have, may remember Scott Morrison came out randomly in one of his, one of his few press conferences and just said something too effective. We're not like the UK and the US uh, and like Europe. We work in cities. And so everyone has to get ready to go back. And for me, that just sounds like commercial real estate and a certain layer of business um, just pushing this angle because they can see that they've lost some, some power to determine where workers work at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, but then... Also, survey evidence shows that um, there's been a massive increase in more worker-friendly uh, types of flexible arrangements, like job sharing and compressed working weeks. That has happened in this time too. So it's the work from home shift is, I think, expanding workers' ex- experience or uh, belief of, that they can have some more agency over how they work. Now, this is we're coming up to I think like some pretty serious contested terrain now because there is we know that there are these desires to do something. And for me, I work following, you know, the industrial relations laws and what our legislation shows. And, like, there's just, it's got to be very hard for workers to be able to hold on to these gains if they want to stay, you know, have this sort of agency. So this is why, yeah, we basically need to create a labour regime and a program of protecting worker rights now that is around work from home and we need to be building, you know, campaigns and, and worker power around this.
0: This is James, and you're listening to Stick Together, the only national radio program focusing on union news, worker stories, and social justice issues. This program is produced in Melbourne for 3CR and the Community Radio Network, with support of the Community Radio Foundation. Some of the some workplaces have permanently moved their staff out of the office, or you know, even completely removed any sort of office building at all. Uh, on Uh, my other show, Uprise Radio. Earlier this year, we spoke to some workers who were working in a call centre and they are now permanently working from home. And, you know, that's also casualised and, you know, that carries a lot of burden and responsibility for those people working, living in sharehouses, and trying to set up a private space to be able to make those calls. And I guess, you know, I, I know this, maybe isn't a uh, as much of an issue for all workers, but certainly some of us who are interested in unions and workplace organising, you know, it just seems really difficult for workers to be able to organise when you're working from home. It's not just, you know, bigger disputes and things like that, but it's all the incidental things, you know, I think hearing about how much your colleagues get paid or trying to get everyone to get out the door at 5 o'clock and, you know, little things like that. Uh, you know, how can we organise and how can we, you know, Keep going with that kind of uh, workplace solidarity without the kind of physical contact with each other.
1: Also, being this underlying bubbling question for me, and uh, because of the scale of the crisis we're in, that is so profound. It's it's uh, you know snatching people's incomes. We've got governments hostile to large, you know, most of us really, uh, and you know, personal lives in total shambles. And we know, though, at the same time. There are people who are safe and powerful enough to be coming up with plans about how to rejig uh, the the state of play even further in their interests. If it's possible to do that in Australia, which already has some of the most anti-union legislation in in advanced economies. And we already know that we've got historic low levels of unionisation, collective bargaining has under this enterprise level you know fast has completely collapsed especially in the private sector so for that example of the casual worker who's in a call center now working from home like it is dire and I I actually have a you know I know people just in that position because Mm. there's casuals already um, face a massive uphill battle in being able to build enough strength to unionize uh, and a lot of the times where we've seen gains in recent, you know, union battles, it's been, and I'm thinking of particularly the UWU's campaigns, they've getting getting gains for casual workers, and t- including stronger conversion rights and, you know, higher pay and all sorts of things has depended on those workers being in the same workplace with permanent workers and being able to fix or, um, you know, integrate their wellbeing and their future and their their conditions to the conditions of permanent workers who by way of being harder to sack are in a position to take more risks and collectivise and get better outcomes for everyone. What is, what would it look like future union representation this time? Like I think past organiser, I know employers are incredibly hostile about unions even being able to email people. And so like there's, it's hard to email non-members. You can only make contact with your own membership And then, of course, you need your delegates to be able to build connections on the ground to reach non-members, right? So Mm. I've worked in, you know, white-collar public sector environments. And so you you need those people to be able to network to find find people, have conversations, because if... If a non-member gets a email and takes it to someone higher ups, eventually commission, like there are there are penalties for communicating in ways that are outside of our laws, right? So this is what I mean by our ridiculous, um, pernicious laws. So, yes, I guess in short, James is like I think we're going to have to be creative about putting forward what a union rights program would look like um, to reach work from home workers, what does collective bargaining look like when we're looking, talking about individual disaggregated people. In many ways, we just we need a whole new system of bargaining. Well, we need a whole new system of bargaining. We do know that. We need sectoral bargaining. Um, and maybe this is that those demands start to build into the, the very clear limits we're coming up with with the enterprise-level bargaining now. Even that, as we said, 5.3 million people um, last month did, worked at least once a week. Um, this is before lockdowns, I should say. Yeah. So worked at least once a week from home. We're talking about a lot of people here.
0: And I think, you know, I guess one of the other issues is, you know, while working from home, I think women are you know, much more likely to carry the burden of unpaid labour in the home. And I think, you know, there's also concerns with women who experience family violence being exposed to longer periods of time living with the person who uses violence. Do you think, you know, there's a way perhaps through the unions or, you know, hopefully um, through government that there's a way we can address some of the gendered issues of working from home?
1: Yeah, we need decent uh, you know our, our paid parental leave system our family-friendly workplace policies and laws are just so abysmal in, in Australia like we are so far behind so it means lots of women are going into this um, already dealing with employers who say oh if we give you some level of flexibility so you can care for your kids is this is already a gift that we're giving you hmm. and it's everything has to be like women are fought to get access to you know be able to work and earn their own incomes and some level of independence and i think that like what i've seen is we we got a lot of these gains um in flexible work arrangements for women to help them work and then in, over time I, as we've gotten this more hostile industrial relations environment some somehow now parental leave and flexible work arrangements have become yeah a privilege that is extended to to workers and that is an impossible situation for so many women um, who do carry the burden, um, the largest, you know, burden of a workload of unpaid caring and um, household tasks? So, I, I think some of the other stats we know is happening in this time is there's been while women have uh, this the unpaid caring work that's exploded during the pandemic to care for each other and you know, meet human needs, that is overwhelmingly falling on women's shoulders. We know that men have undertaken, they've increased their levels of um, childhood uh, children caring, like caring for kids. Um, not so much household tasks, right, but they, they're they doing more work caring for kids. And there's been a bit of a shift, I think, with working from home where um, especially young families have realised um, that there are other ways that they can carve up these roles. And that's kind of like a bit of a silver lining is I think it's actually creating the basis for um, a lot of young fathers who have said time and time again, if you gave me more flexible work arrangements and better paid parental leave, I'd bloody take it and I'd I'd do it and I'd spend more time with my kids. So I think there's been a shift in uh, at least people's expectations, but I don't think that's at all been, we haven't seen any changes in our industrial relations laws. Employers have got a whole bunch of tools to keep cutting wages and, you know, do what they do, but we haven't got anything on our side to really ensure that um, women are not going backwards uh, in their careers and what go- what happens is because they have all this extra work they cut back their paid work hours they might drop back to part-time if they were full-time so they lose incomes they lose um, you know their their standing in their overall progression of their careers and we know as you know in gender economics that these are key factors for gender pay gaps. Is that women are always the ones that cut back their paid work in order to do the important unpaid caring work? Um, and the idea is, we want to create a system where women aren't penalised for, first of all, undertaking that work, you know, by having decent income supports, but also a, a more generous workplace support system that encourages men to take on and do, would do a better sharing of that work by not by not financially penalising people. Um, on the domestic violence issue, it is this other like thing that has to be continuously talked about because while we were all working from home, the media were just, you know, and police telling funny stories about how people are working at home and watching Netflix and their PJs. And like, it was, it was terrifying, a terrifying time for so many women in, in Australia um, and people in hostile violent situations at home where the workplace is actually a source of their empowerment, where they derive incomes Um, where they consider a future beyond that abusive person where they plan for a future beyond that abusive person and where as you as you rightfully pointed out they can connect with organizations like unions who fight for them to they can join the fight for things like 10 days paid domestic violence leave and that's an ongoing very live campaign so what does it mean now that those women can't be in the workplace fighting for those things um how are we going to you know aggregate the power to to support people now you know trying to continue to derive an income and to build their independence while facing that, you know, very, very live threat in the home.
0: Mm, Yeah, well, I think just before we we finish up uh, today, and it's been a really great chat, thanks for providing so much insight into, you know, what are really kind of complex issues and, like you said, need a lot of structural reform to, you know, really support workers. Uh, I wanted to just move slightly away from working from home for one second. And I'm going to read back to you a quote that um, from yourself earlier this year. Um, and it's just about, I guess, the role of think tanks. And I guess I've just got a question around that. So this is your quote. I see our job as being able to articulate what's going on in the economy to explain that and to explain the alternatives, like how we could be organising the economy to meet human need or to address the climate crisis. And I guess, yeah, my question is, like, do you think think tanks are providing, I guess, a political space in Australian society that was once taken up by political parties and the media as those institutions seem to have moved, you know, kind of away from debate and I guess some of the more, you know, the larger left-wing organisations, you know, no longer around and unions are not perhaps providing that space. Do you think that, you know, think tanks can provide some of that political discussion and sort of left debate in society today?
1: Oh, I certainly think so, James. That's why I I think as someone who's trying to push the, you know, push the needle and um, progress worker rights, for me, it seems like the best place to be contributing and that I I've, I've, I believe that, and I guess if I'm speaking from my own choices and strategic choices, is I've looked at the the lay of the land, and um, you know, like it's quite clear we've got a pretty profound, deep political crisis, uh, and the crisis of the Labor Party. Like we could talk at length about what's going on going on there, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that given the state of like the, the the level of hostility that unions are having to operate under right now. Um, I I think I, because I, I used to work in a union, I, I come from a more independent working class politics, which is not wedded to any institutions, but one that recognizes we, we build institutions that are useful for us to achieve the power we want, right? And so unions unto themselves are not progressive. They are just, they're mechanisms for us to join, to fight within, to achieve our outcomes. Um, and so I uh, when I, as I was working in a union, I got a, and having to organise through, you know, things like the Fair Work Act and dealing with like the level of hostility in our legislation, in employers, and of course, like so much work to do in our own backyard in terms of coming to terms with like the state of enterprise bargaining, the fact that that was a failure, the legacy of the Accords, you know, a, a member focused type of organisation professionalism rather than organising focuses, you know, we've got a lot of our own backyard, but pulling all those things together, I, I think in this particular time of, I, th- I just I think the best way to push the whole thing along is to be building debate, getting out there, and you know, becoming a bit more not scared to take risks and throw stuff out there. Um, and I yeah, I think that the the, the think tank I work for, which is it's the Center for Future Work, it's part of a larger think tank called the Australia Institute. In terms of the think tankery landscape for Australia, we're pretty much the only like independent progressive outfit in town, right? We don't take money from political parties. Uh, we take, you know, it's everyday Australians generally that, that contribute to the, our organisation and pay my way. And that means that we are able to, to speak to any policies at any point in time without fear. And um, we're not worried about our money being cut off because we just said something that someone didn't like. And I don't think that's the same for uh, just about most other think tanks in Australia, Um, ones that call themselves progressive as well as the majority of think tanks, which are big right-wing tobacco, you know, fossil fuel-funded organisations like the IPA. So, I mean, yeah. And I think, you know, with the
0: Australia Institute, um, you know, throughout last year and earlier this year, there was a number of kind of webinars and um, I think, yeah, really interesting things that were put on as well. And I guess it can be a source for raising people's political consciousness and, you know, really trying to learn about, you know, in this time, maybe you do have some time to you thinking about the way that the world is being shaped, that there's certainly some ideas to engage with there that can help to form or shape some of the things that people have been thinking about during this pretty difficult time for workers.
1: Yeah. And and holding that space, providing that space and holding that space and showing that, you know, we need that engagement and discussion and debate and, Australia is not immune from a global, uh, you know, decline in democratic participation. It goes inside, it's, a, it's on par with the decline of the union movement, which is a really key way that civil society was organised in Australia uh, and absolutely providing that space and just holding some of that space because I think I, I every day I'm really proud of the work of the Australian Institute and, you know, we're a, a broad lunch with a whole bunch of you know different perspectives on stuff but first and foremost we're committed to um to debate and to facts and that's especially in a time of like real disengagement disdain for and rightful disdain for institutions that have screwed people over for so long um in order to build that new world you have to hold the space and talk about the ideas of what that is because like you were saying before james it's clear that uh, at this point our political parties aren't aren't able to do that, um, aren't able to dream up what those big picture questions are, t- take on that that debate, right? They, they're biting their tongues a lot. They're, they're too risk-averse. And I think um, deep down what, what drives me and I think, yeah, keeps me going is that I know as, you know, a working-class person who talks to other working-class people that, like people are fed up they they're not they're not idiots they're not and they're not waiting for people to show them the way like they they want to engage and they want to be you know their their hands aren't painted on like they they can, they can articulate things for themselves and they've they're far more progressive than our media is is, I think there's a general social democratic perspective that isn't being reflected in our mainstream media, ABC included. I think there's been mm. a big drift. So I, I take confidence in that and I, I think the think tank is a, is a good framework to be keeping that participation and debate alive, yeah.
0: Well, thanks a lot for joining us on 3CR, Stick Together today. And I think it is really important work to imagine a future that is you know, today, tomorrow, and much further into the future, that is a better place for workers. Uh, Thanks a lot for joining us, Alison. Cheers, James. That's it for Stick Together this week. If you want to catch up with our program, the podcast is available at 3cr.org.au or through iTunes, and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com. My name's James Brennan, and remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you.